Hello, my name is Paulina DeClue. Welcome to Cross Currents, Navigating U.S.-Norway Relations After 9-11, a podcast where we examine how 9-11 shook up diplomatic relations between the United States and our European allies, as seen through the lens of U.S.-Norway alliance during the Bush presidency. In this episode, we are talking about how 9-11 was perceived in Europe and some of the early fallout in international diplomacy. Whatever foreign policy priorities that President George W. Bush might have outlined when he came into office, 9-11 upended them in short order. What did that mean for American allies, especially those in Europe? How did it lead to one of the lowest points in transatlantic relations in a generation? Dr. Lai Leon, a fellow at the SMU Center for Presidential History, is with me to discuss these questions. Dr. Leon is the lead scholar who conducted the oral history interviews that provide the material for our podcast. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. For the people of New York City and Washington, D.C., 9-11 was an earth-shattering day. Everywhere else, many Americans say they remembered the moment they heard about the attacks. It's one of those memories seared into our collective memory. Dr. Leon, set the stage. How was it for the rest of the world? Hi, Paulina. Yes, the notion of an attack on American soil at the beating heart of New York City with everything the city represents to the world, cosmopolitan, prosperous, dynamic, it was unfathomable, not just to Americans, but also to non-Americans, people outside the U.S., Those of us who had friends abroad at that time can testify that people were calling and relaying what they saw on TV. The sense of disbelief was palpable. Everyone I spoke to when I did my project in Norway had no hesitation recalling that day. Christine Halvorsen, leader of the socialist left or the SV party, described the moment she heard the news of the attacks. And I was in the parliament, in my office in the parliament, uh, preparing for um, a debate in the uh, television, mm. NRK, mm. the same evening, uh, together with all the party leaders. And then uh, s- someone knocked at my door and said, you have to turn on the television, this is really f- scaring and frightening. And I did. And I was, of course, terrified. Mm. Before, at first, I, we didn't understand what was actually going on, but then we saw that it was a catastrophe. And I had friends staying at Manhattan at the time, so I tried to call them yeah. and find out what was going on. And, uh, and we, were, we, we felt terrified. We, it was shocking, and we were, of course, also... Uh, we, we also felt attacked. Mm. 9-11 did not only bring about a tectonic shift in American foreign policy, it also had profound effect on the politics of other countries. As we just heard from the clip, the 9-11 attacks reverberated well beyond the borders of the U.S. and shook the halls of political power across the world. What was going on in Norway at the time of the attacks? Well, the Conservative Party in Norway had just won the biggest vote share the day before and were in the midst of forming a coalition government. Here's the leader of the Hoira party and soon-to-be foreign minister, Jan Pietersen, explaining the impact. We saw what had happened 
but we didn't know what we didn't see. I mean, we we had problems really uh, understanding fully what had happened and uh, if there was something which we hadn't seen on the television. So what was behind it? Who were they? Uh, would there be more attacks? I mean, things like that. Mm. So, uh, so um, the interesting. I mean, f- for us, I mean, then everything just turned around, and mm. we forgot about the elections and and, and focused on uh, on this. And this was, of course, on everyone's mind in the during the, the following days and and weeks. Mm. Which actually, it is quite strange, but it actually left us a little bit of quiet to mm. think about the form, formation of government mm. and, and the political issues because mm. uh, the, the focus was, was uh, different. It sounds like there was an awareness immediately that something was going to change in the international arena and that the U.S. would likely take extraordinary action. But did anyone expect that U.S. allies would be asked to step up? Well, as we mentioned in the introductory episode, there was a great deal of sympathy for the U.S., and our allies recognized the significance of such large-scale terrorist attacks inflicted on home ground, so to speak, on the world's superpower. Listen to what Christine Krohn-Devold, Norway's defense minister at that time, said about it. It made a great impression on everybody, and we realized that for the Americans, this was like Pearl Harbor, uh, or it, would, it was like it was for Norway back in... 1940, when the the Germans uh, entered our borders. So some of the sentiments and the deep fear and the shock of the American people. There we hear the defense minister putting 9-11 side by side with her country's experience of World War II, and also expressing her understanding of the national trauma, which she compared to the Nazi invasion of Norway. That's putting it quite strongly. Was this type of sentiment typical among European leaders? It was. The 9-11 attacks were a complete and utter shock. It rattled the world and called into question the security of many countries. If the world's only superpower could suffer such an attack, then what could be next and who would be next? It created a sense that everyone was in it together. Hence this strong feeling of solidarity across Europe and especially among our NATO allies. NATO has a collective defense clause called Article 5 that basically says an attack on one is an attack on all. And NATO quickly invoked it, right? Yes, but the U.S. didn't take it up. The U.S. decided not to work through NATO. Instead, the Bush administration launched Operation Enduring Freedom in early October 2001, in joint combat operations with the United Kingdom, but not through NATO itself. Here's the thing. This choice raised some eyebrows among NATO allies, even when they understood why it was done that way. Here's Norway's foreign minister, Jan Pietersen, acknowledging the rationale behind the U.S. decision. Well, actually, I think it does, is a very pragmatic uh, approach uh, from, from, the, from the U.S. I mean, they need something which uh, can work, can work fast. Um, and, and, and the point is that they got contributions from members of the Atlantic community. Were there any countries that particularly pushed for the invocation of Article 5? Yes, certainly. You see, it wasn't just about solidarity. There were actually strategic reasons 
why some NATO allies want the U.S. to act through NATO. Christopher Egerberg, a Norwegian journalist, puts it this way: Big countries,、uh, as I believe, and and my sources tell me, Canada、uh, was、uh, the point for doing. They、uh, wanted to invoke Article Five in order to make sure that the U.S. would kind of do things within the alliance and not on their own. This was、uh, the rest of the world's or, or the rest of NATO's effort in order to、uh, make sure that this would be done in a in an orderly fashion. And meanwhile, across the ocean in Washington D.C., what was going on in diplomatic circles? Norway's ambassador to the U.S. at that time was Knut Vollebeck. He was in Washington D.C. on 9/11 itself. Here he is describing to me what it felt like the first days after the attacks. It was a very, very、uh, odd feeling、uh, because of the、uh, after this drama and all of a sudden this uh, silence uh, that was not normal for a place like D.C. But this silence, which was both literal and metaphorical. As the world waited to see how the U.S. would respond, this silence soon turned into an unspoken expectation for open demonstrations of solidarity, both big and small, including one at least that wasn't too subtle. Ambassador Vollebeck recalls this particular norm that quickly developed. Even as a politician, I thought I didn't wear pins, but of course I had to wear. Uh, pins in in、uh, Washington at that time and a, a Norwegian and American flag together,、yeah. because that was the first things people looked at when we had our meetings in State Department and other official、uh, residences. They looked, at, does he have a pin or not? Because that was a sign of of solidarity.、Yeah. And、uh, as you may recall, I mean, people were f- having huge flags on the cars. It was a very strong manifestation of、uh, we are standing together. We are fighting this. We are overcoming. Were there calls for bigger and maybe more tangible expressions of solidarity as well? And how did U.S. allies respond? Yes, U.S. allies did step up in bigger and more tangible ways too, even though they didn't do so through NATO. After the initial U.S.-U.K. airstrikes and troop movement into Afghanistan, our allies gave support both in terms of personnel and material. This started in November two thousand one. A few weeks after the U.S.-U.K. invasion began, Canada, Germany, France, NATO allies, one by one, they contributed boots on the ground, from a few hundred to several thousands, and equipment. For example, Norway sent F-16s as well as their highly trained special forces. In all, some sixty countries joined the U.S. coalition in Afghanistan eventually. But this was a U.S.-led mission, not a NATO one. NATO did take over, though later, didn't it? How did that happen? That's right. NATO assumed responsibility for Afghanistan in December two thousand one, following a United Nations Security Council resolution, and after the overthrow of the Taliban, it was called ISF. That's the International Security Assistance Force. Its job. To put down remaining Taliban insurgents and train Afghan troops to restore security, so that a new government could get established. ISF was led by NATO command, and that was important to our European allies because it affirmed a multilateral approach 
to military action in Afghanistan. There are many reasons for such a focus on multilateralism. There's a saying that NATO came into being to keep the Soviets out, the Germans down, and the Americans in. NATO functioned and still functions to keep U.S. and Europe closely aligned. And in 2001, when the U.S. had no rival on the world stage, NATO members were even more keen to move in lockstep with the U.S. But it wasn't just about keeping up with the U.S. It was also about moderating the U.S., about making sure the U.S. didn't go it alone and move too far outside the circle of common interests with its allies. As Norwegian foreign policy scholar Asla Toya told me, it didn't take long for NATO allies to set constraints on U.S. action in Afghanistan. The Afghan conflict started off as a uh, coalition of the willing, where it was quite clear that the Americans wanted to call the shots and they wanted to tell other countries what to do, when to do it, where and where to do it. And after some initial back and forth, we started to get the problem of the caveats. You got European countries with their parliaments uh, stepping in and saying, well, we can deploy our troops in this way, but not in that way. Our fire drills or, you know, like the, our, our rules of engagement will be different from those of the United States. We'll do this or we won't do that. Was it a stretch for NATO to intervene as far afield as Afghanistan? Well, in the 1990s, NATO had authorized action in the Balkans, the first formal war involving the alliance. In brief, this followed the dissolution of Yugoslavia and the conflict sparked by Serbia's aggression. A quarter of a million people had been displaced and thousands of homes destroyed. Ground troops went into Kosovo in 1999, which NATO justified as a response to the humanitarian disaster. Notably, the U.S. did not agree to send troops in that war. We participated in airstrikes instead. In any case, Kosovo at least lay on the edge of Europe. So you're right to ask whether Afghanistan represented a stretch. I think one way to understand NATO motivation at that time was, in addition to keeping the U.S. inside the tent, so to speak, involvement in Afghanistan gave NATO a renewed sense of mission. After the end of the Cold War, NATO struggled to articulate a purpose, a reason for being. Kosovo represented its first so-called out-of-area operation and really hadn't gone too well. It revealed decision-making problems and political divisions within NATO. So Afghanistan offered something of a do-over. From a strategic perspective, Afghanistan also provided the opportunity for acting on a so-called strategic concept that NATO had developed in 1999, which endorsed the alliance projecting power outside of Europe. This reconceived the purpose of NATO's military posture beyond its Cold War rationale. Maybe you could say in simple language that it was a security alliance looking for new objectives. And compared to Kosovo, Afghanistan proved politically much easier for governments to sign on to, given the immense goodwill that the U.S. had after 9-11. So what happened then when the Bush administration turned its attention to Iraq? Was the goodwill still there? No. By the time the U.S. turned to Iraq, the feelings towards the U.S. were quite, quite different. Iraq proved a major stress test 
for NATO at many levels. Even ISAF in Afghanistan ran into political roadblocks and operational difficulties. And that was a UN mission with a great deal of consensus. Let's hold back a little bit on that because we're planning another podcast episode to talk more about NATO operations in Afghanistan. Right. So Iraq. The Bush administration turned his attention to Iraq in January 2002 during his State of the Union address. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. How did NATO allies react to the speech? This speech, especially the idea of the axis of evil, proved highly divisive. The view of most NATO allies was, look, we are still stabilizing the situation in Afghanistan. Osama bin Laden remained at large. The Taliban government had been overthrown, but the new government under Hamid Karzai, still extremely weak. The job wasn't done. Why are we talking about Iraq, which to many seemed like it had nothing to do with 9-11? Some of our listeners probably remembered that tense period. So how did the United States link Iraq to 9-11? Some attempt was made to suggest Saddam Hussein hosted the 9-11 attackers at some point. But the main argument concerned the Iraqi leader secretly building weapons of mass destruction. The global war on terror, which now encompassed Iraq as well, became an umbrella term for much more than what our allies signed off on in 2001. The use of the, quote, war on terror, unquote, to justify action against Iraq began to alienate our allies. France and Germany took the lead in resisting the drumbeat for war. I won't rehash the extended and angry debates that took place at the United Nations at that time. All of that is well documented. And as you say, many of our listeners will remember the events. France and Germany absolutely rejected the efforts of the U.S., led by Secretary of State Colin Powell, to make a case for attacking Iraq. So this made for a low point in the U.S. alliances with traditional European allies? Yes, it did and a very low point at that. It didn't help that American messaging became more and more confused, at least as seen or heard in Europe. According to journalist Christopher Egerberg, the Bush administration was selling the war to the American public. At the same time, it seemed to be telling allies that it didn't really want war, but Iraq was forcing its hand. Here's what Christopher Egerberg said. Like I told you, the aftermath of 9-11, this kind of trying to, to, to speak one voice to the public and one voice internationally and one voice to, to, to the foreign policy, not being in war, being in war, this, this whole kind of split and, 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 and different ways of explaining the world were in to different publics. Someone would call it two-faced, 
or even three or four faced. Uh, someone would call it diplomacy. Someone would call it just, um, I mean, a very hard balance to make. So France and Germany came out strongly against the U.S. How did this situation put smaller allies like Norway between a rock and a hard place? What did smaller countries like Norway do? Smaller allies in NATO went different ways. A few, like the Netherlands and Denmark, stuck with the U.S. and joined the coalition of the willing that eventually invaded Iraq. Others stood with France and Germany and strongly condemned what they called a flagrant violation of sovereignty. A mix of foreign policy and domestic reasons explained the choice in each case. For Norway, the decision was not to participate in the invasion of Iraq. It tested the Norwegian government at that time. It was a coalition government that included political parties pulling in different directions about what to do. And once leaders made the difficult decision not to participate in the Iraq invasion, they felt great apprehension about possible fallout for U.S.-Norway relations. In fact, all this came together in one big moment when President Bush called Norway's prime minister on the phone and asked point blank if Norway would send troops. That sounds like a dramatic moment in international diplomacy. I'm looking forward to diving into the details of that event in our next episode. We started our conversation today discussing the immense unity that the Europeans felt with the United States right after 9-11. Now we're pausing at the point where dependable allies in Europe were chafing at U.S. efforts to broaden the war on terror. In the next episode, we will discuss how NATO faced a strategic dilemma and how Norway's leaders used close personal relations with senior members of the Bush administration in its diplomatic efforts. Thank you for listening, and please join us again in our next episode. That's it for 9-11 and its aftermath. Episode 1 of our first season of First Hand History. Thank you to Dr. Lai-Yi Leong, our project leader for the oral history collection this podcast is based on, Transatlantic Diplomacy After 9-11, the U.S. and Norway. And thank you to Paulina DeClue and Warda Alvi, both former research assistants with the Center for Presidential History. Season 1 of Firsthand History, Cross Currents, is a production of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Our thanks to the Debman College of Humanities and Sciences for their support. Thank you to Pro Podcast Solutions, who helped edit and produce this episode. Theme music, entitled Endless Story, was written by Nick Petroff and licensed through Premium Beat. For more information on this podcast and the oral histories it is based on, visit our website at www.smu.edu. Stay tuned for the next episode of Season 1, Cross Currents, as we assess the diplomatic and security dilemmas Norway found themselves in when they questioned and resisted the U.S. call to join the coalition of military forces in Iraq. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more episodes very soon.